Our passage this morning for the sermon is James chapter 4. James chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in you, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Lord, Heavenly Father, we ask your blessings upon this time. We ask that by your spirit you would quicken us. Change us, Lord God, to be more like you. Help us to glorify you this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. This morning we continue our, our study that we're doing periodically as a sort of a break for Travis from going through Matthew. James and I, or Jason and I have been going through the, the book of James. Just as a quick kind of recap or a little bit of background on where we've come so far in chapters 1 through 3, we see that James is essentially telling the church, the churches, that if we have true faith, it will what? It will be exhibited in good works. Faith without works, James says, is dead. He tells us that true faith will show in, in our love for one another. And that we'll, we'll have love for one another without partiality. That we'll endure trials with joy. And that we'll live humble and holy lives before the Lord. And he warns us in chapter 3 about the misuse of our tongues. And what great damage and harm that can come from when we misspeak, when we misuse our tongues. And then last time, Jason told us, in cha- preached from chapter 3, about the different kinds of wisdom that there are. We compared and contrast the wisdom from above the heavenly wisdom, which is defined as being pure and gentle and open to reason, versus the wisdom from below, the worldly wisdom, 
which was defined as being manifested in bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. And so today we come to chapter 4, and I was thinking about what a key verse might be used. What could a title be for this this sermon? Several come to mind, but one in particular was verse 7, where James tells us to submit to God and resist the devil. Submit to God and resist the devil. Our first, my first point, I'm going to make, if you're making room for notes, I'm going to have six. Because Travis usually has four or five, and I want to do one, one better than Travis. <laughs> <laughs> so six, six points. First point, our passions war within us. Our passions war within us. In verse one, what causes quarrels? And what causes fights among you? Is it not this that our passions are at war within us? Would you agree with me that in our world today, there's a lot of conflict? See conflict everywhere, don't we? We see just turn on the news and and it's all about conflict. Read the paper, it's all about conflict. There's conflict between nations. There's conflicts within a nation. There's conflicts between political parties. There's conflicts at our work, our place of business. There's even conflict in the church and in our homes. The other day I witnessed a pretty dramatic um, conflict as I was driving down the road. All of a sudden these two cars come flying by me and they're Swerving, and especially one guy is upset with the other guy. It was, it was a road rage, and it was it went on for for quite a while. I mean, it was amazing to see. It's sad to see, isn't it? How impatient we are with one another, and how that impatience and that being self-absorbed comes out in conflict with one another. Well, James tells us that there's a source to that conflict, and it's actually a battle that's going on within our hearts. Within, within our hearts. It's our passions. What does that word passion t- mean? What's it talking about? It's actually a word that's used in Scripture to, to describe our desire. A desire for pleasure. Right? A desire, a longing, a striving for something, a pleasure. You know, when I'm driving down the road, I don't know about you, but I prefer to have nobody else around me, right? I, I want to get to work on time, and I want to enjoy the road. I want to enjoy my music, whatever it is. So when somebody, you know, cuts me off, that's not very pleasurable. And I find myself, you know, becoming angry and, and bitter and, and all those things. It's because I'm, I'm not getting what I want. I'm not getting the pleasure that James says we, we all basically desire. And it, he tells us that this leads us to quarreling. So what is quarreling? You know, if you're, this is a word we don't use very often, right, quarrel. But if you're from the South, you probably hear it more than, than, than other people. It's an old-fashioned word, but essentially it means to argue, right? It's to, it's to get into an, a debate or an argument in particular, a heated, a heated argument. And a lot of the times, like being cut off on the road, 
or being cut, someone cut in front of you in line or whatever it might be. It's about something trivial, but it takes away our pleasure. It's something that interferes with our, our need, and our desire, and our want for pleasure. And James says this is it's all stemming from the battle that's going on inside of us. Remember the passage in Ephesians where Paul tells us that we wrestle not against what? Flesh and blood. We wrestle against spiritual forces of evil. The spiritual battle. And it's going on, beloved, in not only unbelievers, but believers as well. We're all susceptible to the spiritual battles and the forces of evil in the world. One pa- one, some translations here talk about the passions that are going on in our members. Our members. That's referring to our physical bodies and our desire for physical pleasure. Listen to this passage from the Apostle Paul in Romans 7.21 describing this this conflict going on inside of us, this battle. He says, so I find this love that when I want to do what is right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. The Apostle Peter talks about this as well in chapter 2, verse 11. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. They war against our souls. So the first point is our passions within us war against our souls. The second point today is these unfulfilled passions cause us to sin. Unfulfilled passions cause us to sin. In verse 2, you desire and you do not have, so what? You murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so what? You fight and quarrel. Like I said, you see conflict everywhere. But in the scriptures themselves, we see this, don't we? There's two very vivid examples of passion, desire that caused people to murder. You probably can think of them just right now. The very first one being in Genesis. When God, after the fall of man, Adam and Eve had two sons, Cain and Abel. And they both brought offerings to the Lord. But the Bible tells us that God had regard for Abel's offering, but for Cain's offering, he had no regard. So what, did, what was Cain's reaction? He was jealous. Sin was crouching at his door, and even though the Lord warned him about it, he went out and he killed, he murdered his brother Abel. The other vivid example is King David. King David, though he had many things as the king, including wives, <clears throat> he saw a woman that he desired who was not his wife. 
Bathsheba, bathing on the, on the patio. <clears throat> and though she was married to another man, Uriah, he had such passion and lust for, for Bathsheba that he took her and committed adultery with her. And then if that wasn't worse, bad enough, he ultimately committed murder when he saw to it that Uriah would be put to death in battle. David committed murder. And in both of these cases, it was, they were brought about because of something inside of us, inside of them, that they couldn't have, that they coveted. And there were serious consequences in both cases. Now, this, this term for murder, though, however, this is, it could be physical murder, but it could also be um, more metaphorical or figurative. Just like James in, the, in earlier uh, chapter 3 talked about how the tongue was a raging fire, this use of this word murder could mean something less than physical murder, but nonetheless just as bad and harmful. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus talked about this. When he, told, when he was preaching the sermon there on the mount, he said, You have heard that it was said of old, Thou shalt not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother is liable to judgment, and whoever insults his brother is liable to the council. So the Lord Jesus is taking it one step further. When we're angry with our brothers, when we insult our brothers, and that anger and that passion from within us, we do murder, we do harm to our brothers and sisters. So why is it that we covet things so badly that we would even commit murder? I, I suppose in regards to pleasure, it's because we think if we only had that whatever that we need, that we don't have, if we, th we think if we had that something, that woman or that, that recognition, we would have more pleasure. This is our thinking. This is our thought process. You know, if I only had more money, then I would be happy. Uh, then I would be, have more pleasure, right? If only I had a car, if only I had a better car, if only my job wasn't such a hassle, if only I had a better job or better retirement, I'm getting close to retirement. If I only had a better retirement package, I would be happier. I'd, be, I'd have more pleasure. If only my wife understood me better or my kids behaved better, then, I would, then I'd be happy. Then I'd be pleasure. But what we find is what's been said is that... Uh, Desire is a cruel master because it never is enough. Worldly pleasure will always leave us empty. It will always leave us seeking for more. So the second point was our unfulfilled passions cause us to sin. Our third point this morning is that God knows our needs and he wants us to ask him. For our needs. In verse 2, the second part of verse 2 says, You do not have. Why? Because you do not ask. And you ask and don't receive. Why? Because you ask wrongly 
to spend it on your pleasures, your passions. The Old Testament has a title for one of the titles for God is Jehovah Jireh, right? That means God is our provider. God wants to provide for us our provisions in life. But here, James is telling us two basic reasons why we don't have what we want. And the first one is as simple as we don't ask. We don't ask. Are you ever guilty of that? Sometimes maybe people don't ask God because they're prideful, right? They think, oh, I got it together. I don't need the Lord right now. I'm just cruising along or, you know, God helps those who help themselves, so I'm going to help myself, which is not true, right? We need the Lord. We, he wants us to ask him for what we need. And the other reason, James tells us, is we, if we do ask, we ask wrongly. What's wrong about the way we ask? It's because we ask to spend it on our pleasures, James says sometimes. That more money, more car, more better, bigger, better. Sometimes those things are going to feed our sinful desires. And just like a heavenly father, I mean, an earthly father is not going to give their kids everything that they ask if it's not good for them. Our Heavenly Father is not going to give us everything that we ask if it's not good for us. Sometimes in the, people have a wrong conception of God in general, that God's some genie in the sky and he'll give us whatever we want. Or you, there's bad theology that, go, that says something like, oh, if only you have enough faith, it's dependent on you and your faith, then you ask God and he'll give you whatever you want. But that's not how it works. God will give us the good things that we want that are in his will. And when we ask according to his will, the Bible says he hears our prayers. Unfortunately for us, we want things now. We are living in a world of instant gratification. And God looks at the long term. God looks at the final outcome of what we have in our lives and he, he always measures it by, is this good for us? I like what Matthew Henry said in a commentary about this, this verse. He said, if I don't have something, there's two reasons for it. Either it's not good for me or I will have it, just not now. I will eventually have it in due time. So God wants us to ask. He wants us to ask. The fourth point is our unfulfilled desires that cause us to sin are due, are due out of an improper relationship with the Lord. We don't have a proper relationship with the Lord. Verse 4. Verse 4 says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scriptures say he yearns jealously over the spirit that he made to dwell in us? 
God desires us to be fully devoted to him. Our relationship with the, with the Lord is meant to be a deep and personal relationship. And the Bible uses the analogy of a marriage. Of a marriage. That our relationship is like a marriage. Our relationship with the Lord. Um, Isaiah. A couple of scriptures that, that talk about that from the Old Testament. Isaiah 54 says, For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord God has called you like a wife. Deserted and grieved in spirit. Jeremiah chapter 2. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth. Your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. And this concept of marriage continues on into the New Testament church. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul writes, Husbands, love your wives, how? As Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water, with the word. And then in Revelation, we, we, we read I, John's vision where he says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. So when God's people rebel and choose to worship and desire things more than God, God refers to this as adultery, as being adulterous, because we're not being faithful to the Lord. And then we see this amazing statement that God yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. God is jealous for us. Now, we've got to be careful. This is not the same kind of jealousy that we read about in chapter 3 that James is warning us against. It's not the same kind of jealousy that we read about in Galatians 5 that's a sinful jealousy, a yearning for something that doesn't belong to us because we use it for our sin and for our pleasure. This is, think of like, you've heard of righteous anger. This is like righteous jealousy. Because the Lord actually has a right to his people. He is God, the creator. He made us for fellowship with him. He made us to worship him and him alone. The, the Ten Commandments that were given to Moses and the Israelites, what was the very first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall worship me and me only. Listen to that text. It's in Exodus chapter 20. If you want to turn there, it's Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. 
You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or is in the earth beneath or in the waters under the earth. Verse 5, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. He repeats this command later on in, in Exodus 34, 14, where he says, you shall not worship, you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. God owns us. He owns the right to us. And he's told us in the very first commandment that we should worship him and worship him alone. And when we worship and we desire things more than God, that is breaking that commandment. And then James says this. He says, this, this relationship that God has designed for us, it's so strong and it's so important that when we break it, it says we're enemies of God. To be a friend, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? That means enemy. It means being hostile to God. The world here is referring to what? It's referring to the, the fallen system of the world's thinking, idolatry. It's the fall of Satan and the opposition towards God. And it's the, it's the subsequent fall of man in rebellion to God. And it's that system of thinking that is the world. And when we choose to, to, to love those things, we set ourselves up as enemies of God. And Romans 8, 7 says that the mind set on the flesh is hostility toward God. These are two opposite and opposing forces or systems. Jesus talked about this to his disciples when he, 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 he was teaching them about the differences. And he read, he taught in John chapter 15, verse 18. Listen to what he says. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The world hates you. And in 1 John uh, chapter 2, the Apostle John says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For this world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the, and the pride of life, the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away with its desires. And whoever does the will of God, though, abides forever. <sighs> Brothers and sisters, until the Lord comes again, unfortunately, we are stuck here in this broken and fallen world. That's the bad news. 
But the good news is that we're not of the world. And Jesus said he is coming again. And he told us that while we're here in this world, we will have what? Tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. The Lord's coming again. And he's going to restore all this brokenness. But until then, we have to persevere. That's the message that we're, we're hearing from James here this morning. Our fifth point, second to last. Fifth point, to be truly happy in this life, we need the grace of God. To be truly happy, we need the grace of God. Verse 6 says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is a quote from Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So let's break this down a little bit. Let's talk about it. But first, let's define what is grace? What is the grace of God? You've probably heard different definitions of, of it. And it could be many, many sermons to define it. But it's simply, simply put, grace is favor. It's favor. It's kindness. It's the blessing of God. It's the divine, the, the divine influence upon the heart that's reflected in the life. It's God's influence in our life. And God says, the Bible says here that, that God shows his favor only to people who are humble. The first kingdom requirement that's given in, 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 the, in the scriptures is that blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit is a reference to humility. So what is, what is true humility? It's not something that you might think of as a weakness. It's not a weakness at all. Rather, it's a strength. To be humble is to, to know your own position before God, but to consider yourself lower. It's essentially not insisting upon your rights or what you deserve. It's being content. A humble person doesn't seek to be uh, vindicated all the time. They don't insist on their own way or insist on their own rights. Uh, they don't always view a situation, whatever they might be in, as thinking, what do I deserve? What, what's right for me? You know, what's just? And in fact, the best example we have of somebody hum uh, humbling themselves in the scriptures is the Lord Jesus, right? The Lord Jesus. In Philippians 2, we read that we should have this mind also in, among ourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the very form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in, the, in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This isn't saying that God was, Jesus was any less 
divine or any less powerful or less worthy. It's saying that he chose to not take upon himself, not insist on his rights. Instead, he humbled himself by becoming a man, going to the cross for our sins. That's the best example we can we have, and it, you can clearly see it's not weakness; it's actually strength. And so the Bible says that God displays His favor, His blessing, on the humble. But it also says something else: it says that He opposes the proud. God gives grace to the humble, but He opposes the proud. This. Opposition is like a resistance. You think of it as like going out to battle and meeting the resistance of another army. Right? I don't know about you, but I don't want to meet the resistance of God. I don't want God, the opposition of God in my life. I would much rather humble myself before the Lord's. But a proud person is exact, the exact opposite of a humble person. A proud person insists on their own rights. A proud person thinks more highly of himself than he really is. But God will, meet, resist, will bring resistance to the proud. And it's so important that we have grace. Here James emphasizes it. He says, but... God gives more grace. God gives us more grace. Grace, we need it so much, but we, we receive it from the Lord freely. It's a gift. We can't earn it, but it's something that we need every single day. It's, it's what the scriptures refer to as grace upon grace. We read it in almost every epistle. The grace of the Lord be with you. The grace of the Lord be with you. Because we need it. Every day. We need to be filled with the Spirit. How often? Continually, the Bible says. Continually. Pray without ceasing. Be filled with the Spirit continually. We need grace. We need grace upon grace. Last point. Point six. God has a, a battle plan for Christian living that He gives us here. God's battle plan for Christian living. In verse 7. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter turn to, to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord, and He will exalt you. I think these actions here, these commandments, really they're commandments of the Lord, lay out for us what we are to do here on this earth and how we're supposed to live a godly life. Let's go through them again real quickly. There's, As the sovereignty of God would have it, there's actually six of these as well. Six points, six, six commands to the battle plan. First, Submit to God. Submit to God. What does that mean? It means to recognize and honor God 
his authority over your life. He is the creator. He made you. He is supreme. He is holy. Submit to God. Recognize that authority. Second, resist the devil. Fight the fight. Don't surrender. And the Bible tells us he will flee from us. Third, draw near to God. How do we draw near to God? Through prayer, through reading his word, through getting to know him, through fellowshipping with his people. Draw near to God. And James says, he'll draw near to you. Fourth, take your sin seriously. Take your sin seriously. Be mournful over your sin. Confess your sins. Repent of your sins. Throw yourselves on the mercy of of the court. Jesus said, "Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted." And the apostle John tells us that if we confess our sins, God is faithful, he will cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Fifth point to the battle plan, don't be double-minded. Don't be double-minded. What is this talking about? It's talking about having two selves, two opinions, two affections. James is saying, don't set your affections on the world. Set them on God. And don't be double-minded about it. Don't waver. Be committed to the Lord. Don't be double-minded. Sixth battle point, back to humbleness. Humble yourselves before God, and He will exalt you. He will lift you up. There's a really neat, there's a really good parallel passage to what I think James is saying here. I think it would be helpful for us to read that in our closing. If you would turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. First Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 5. Peter writes... Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls like a roaring lion, seeking whom he, to advise, whom he may devour. Resist him, verse 9, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal joy in Christ, will himself restore, comfort, strengthen, and establish you. Sounds very much the same, doesn't it? The Apostle Paul, the Apostle James, they're encouraging us to fight the good fight of faith, to humble ourselves. So what did we learn? We learned... Our passions war within us. And these unfulfilled passions, they cause us to sin. God wants us to ask for what we have need of. He is our provider. He wants us to 
be fulfilled so that our undesired, uh, unfulfilled sinful desires don't cause us to sin. He wants us to have a proper relationship with him as in a marriage, a faithful marriage. He wants us to be truly happy. And the only way we can be truly happy is to have the grace of God. And he gives us a battle plan that we can act on. He gives us marching orders, if you will. In my readings, preparation for this sermon, I came across this little uh, story that was written by a man I had never heard of him called F.F. Trench. But uh, John MacArthur quoted him in his, in his sermon. I thought, this is really good. So I want to end with this little story, if you will, this from F.F. Trench. And I want you to kind of put your thinking caps on, imagination caps on, and listen to this story, this analogy, this allegory. I have seen a poor blind worm on top of a slender pole stretching every ring of its fragile form and groping all around in vacant space, tingling with impatience to climb higher, but doomed to stop at the top of the pole. It was a caterpillar whom a rough wind had shaken from the green tree where it was quietly feeding, and it found itself on the dry, hard ground. And it wandered about in dry places, seeking rest and finding none, until it reached the bottom of this wall, the foot of this pole, and then it climbed. But you see, it has nothing. The green Painted pole is a very different thing from the leafy tree that it was, was living in. Poor creature. It's hungry. And the reason why it runs along and stretches upward so anxiously is if happily it might find the juicy foliage that it once fed on. But it will never find it there. Up among the branches of the tree of life, man once had his home, his resting place. And there he fed sweetly. But a rough storm of temptation shook him down, and now he runs among the dry places, seeking rest and finding none. And you will sometimes find him, poor groveling worm, poor fallen man, trying to better himself by climbing up some painted pole. And once he gains its top, you will see him exploring blindly around in emptiness, feeling for some higher object on which to rest, some green thing for his hungry soul to feed on, pivoting and balancing himself and stretching outward and stretching upward. But the tree of life is not there until it comes to live on God himself. The hungry soul of man will never be satisfied. End of quote, end of story. St. Augustine summarized this very briefly and powerfully when he said, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, 
and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. The good news today is that the gospel of Jesus Christ saves us from our sins, saves us from our fallenness, saves us from this world. Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we cast ourselves upon the throne of grace. We confess to you our sin. We confess to you our need for you, our utter dependence on the grace of God. Lord, be merciful. Be gracious to you, to us as we humble ourselves before you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.